0: Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed, my name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get Spoonfed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine, where we just want to keep you guys up to date on the literature, and to do that, we Spoonfeed it to you. If you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber, and so you will not be receiving the full Journal Feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, they're all good articles. But if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. And remember that we never want money to be a barrier to better patient care, so if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, just get in touch, we'll help you out. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by our authors, Seth Walsh-Blackmore, Megan Hilbert, Carmen Wolf, Samuel Rouleau, and Clay Smith. All right, let's skip over to the second article. Titled, Properties of Ultrasound, Rapid MRI, Clinical Diagnostic Pathway, in Suspected Pediatric Appendicitis, out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. In pediatric appendicitis, of course, we skip the CT whenever we can. We don't want to radiate little children, so we go and get them an ultrasound. The problem with ultrasound, though, is the, the appendix is a slippery little fellow, and it can be hard to always get a definitive scan, especially in early appendicitis. The next option, while still avoiding radiation, is to do an MRI. Now a full MRI takes a lot of time and resources, but how about a rapid MRI? Would that be good enough? We've seen success with rapid MRIs in head imaging before, so maybe in this case as well. Now this was a prospective cohort study out of Canada evaluating rapid MRI instead of repeat ultrasounds in patients with concern for appendicitis. So they all got ultrasounds as first-line imaging, and then the MRIs were done after a negative ultrasound with continued clinical concern for an appendicitis, or if there was a discrepancy between a conclusive ultrasound and re-examination of that patient, even if it was a positive ultrasound. Now, this MRI approach was compared with the usual serial ultrasound approach, just to get repeat ultrasounds until you can make a decision definitively, which has been shown already to have an accuracy of 94%. But in this study, Rapid MRI protocol that they followed, it performed very well. A 98% clinical accuracy with a sensitivity of 98% and a specificity of 99%. Very few children in this study went on to get CTs, which is exactly what we essentially kind of want to avoid. Now, this kind of thing could change the game for appendicitis screening in children, but it's certainly not going to change the game for everybody. These were non-sedated MRIs, which is amazing, but it's not clear exactly what the scan time was, And a lot of children often need sedation for MRIs. MRIs are scary, and you've got to, you know, hold tight and not move. Now, not all MRI machines are even going to be able to do these scans. That's assuming that you have this kind of availability of MRIs at your site in general, especially since this was a convenient sample of daytime patients for the trial. So for now, this is very promising, but broad implementation is probably going to be slow in uptake. It's nice to see what the future holds, though. Or maybe in the future, we'll just skip ultrasound altogether and just get these rapid MRIs. That would be lovely. In this book, with concern for pediatric appendicitis and an indeterminate ultrasound or discrepancy between clinical findings and the results you did get on an ultrasound, then rapid MRI protocol was a very accurate tiebreaker for deciding what to do with these kids. And then we move on to the fifth and final article titled Cephapine versus Piperacillin-Tazobactam, in adults hospitalized with acute infection, the ACORN randomized clinical trial out of the JAMA. Now, I'm not sure what things look like where you work, but in cases of, you know, probably could be sepsis, then I feel like we sprinkle Piperacillin-Tazobactam, I'm just going to call it Piptazo, on everyone like it's magic dust and it's going to make them all better. The other popular option for sepsis that still covers resistant gram-negative bacteria would include Cephapine, Mm, but you'll have to weigh out your options a little bit. Peptazo comes with a risk of AKI, especially when given with vancomycin, as it often is. And cefepime, on the other hand, well, it's reported to cause some degree of neurotoxicity as it crosses the blood-brain barrier. Now, until now, the two drugs have not been put head-to-head in the same trial to compare the rates of adverse effects. And that's what these authors did. They used medical ICU patients and randomized them between the two antibiotic regimes. Cefepime or Piptazo within 12 hours of hospital arrival. Now they use pretty standard doses of these medications: either 2 grams of cefepime every 8 hours or Piptazo at a dose of 3.375 grams as a bolus and then at 4 hours infusions every 8 hours. The primary outcome was AKI or death at 2 weeks. They randomized a decent number of patients as well: 2,600 patients. Vancomycin administration was similar between the two groups. What they found was no difference in the primary outcome, so there's no difference in AKI or death at 14 days. There was also no difference in the secondary outcome of major adverse kidney events. As for cefepime side effects, well, there they did see a difference. Those who received cefepime had less days without delirium or coma, an odds ratio of 0.79, so they had more altered mental status with the cefepime group. This was true even after controlling for baseline delirium and coma, as well as sedation given at enrollment. So now I actually feel a little bit more affirmed in my choice of giving more Piptazo and not so often giving cefepime. Delirium and coma sound like pretty patient-centered outcomes to me. Those are things that I probably care about and the patient probably cares about. In spoonful, this study, the ACORN RCT, showed no difference in rates of AKI or adverse kidney events between Piptazo and Cefapine. However, cefepine had higher rates of neurological side effects. And that was the last article, so we can do our wrap-up from the day. From the second article, rapid MRIs to assess for appendicitis appear to be accurate and could play a role in acting as a tiebreaker when clinical decisions aren't that clear and you don't want to do serial ultrasounds. Then the fifth article. The ACORN RCT showed us that cefepime may have more neurological side effects than piperacillin-tazobactam when used as first line for sepsis treatment. Although Piptazo did not increase rates of adverse kidney events. Again, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not a part of the members feed and so you missed three articles from this past week. One of them talked about acute appies and when they should actually go for surgery. The next was what really is the normal temperature baseline for people. And then finally, we did a review of encephalitis. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Our goal here is for you guys to read less, learn more, and save lives, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.